Father, as I turn to your word in an attempt to teach, I pray, Father, that the words I speak would be according to your spirit so that they might rightly belong to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Acts chapter 17. We left off at about verse 21. Tonight you're going to study with me Paul's presentation of the gospel to the men of Athens on the Mars Hill. Famous scene. We have churches now named after Mars Hill. It's such a notable moment in the book of Acts. And there is a remarkable story here. There's a remarkable pattern that we can learn from. Where we left off last week, Paul had been in Athens, filling his time, waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him from where they were still in Berea. And he filled that time by street preaching in the city of Athens. This is the first time he'd ever done that. And it's the model, really, of how we do it in some cases today. Step into a world that doesn't know the Lord and bring them face to face with the gospel. Now, we said last week as we looked at the text that as he's in the street teaching on a given day, he catches the attention of these two leading schools of philosophical thought in Athens, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And we talked about each of those groups and what they stood for. If you missed that, I encourage you to go back to the recording and catch up. But as a result of that encounter in the street, they're intrigued enough by what he says that they invite him to join an elite group, a group of thinkers that gather on this place, at this place in Athens called the Areopagus. The Greeks called it the Areopagus. The Romans called it Mars Hill. And they meet there as debaters to just bounce around ideas. This is what passes for sophistication in that day. You had to have means to not have to go to work. You had to have an interest in these kinds of esoteric, never-ending discussions. So they could have run for Congress if they <laughs> lived in our day. Now, into this setting of the blind leading the blind, you have Paul thrust with the truth. So in starting in verse 19, I'm reading... And then they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I'm pausing there because I I want to set up what Paul's about to go do and, of course, address the opening verses here as we go through this this interesting moment in Paul's ministry. Paul is, in my opinion, at his best in this moment as he rises to the occasion and he preaches the gospel to such a challenging audience. Luke probably recorded this moment in part because it shows such a fine example of how this short Jewish Pharisee could adapt his approach to meet the needs of this audience and really to reach any audience. This is masterful on Paul's part. As someone who tries to do similar things, I can appreciate very well how Paul went about this. It's very, very interesting how he does this. And we could actually spend all night, and thankfully I won't, analyzing Paul's approach to presenting the gospel. And in fact, if you have an interest in that call specifically, you could do worse than spending a lot of time looking at what Paul does here in this moment. Remember, to the Jews in Thessalonica... 
Paul went into the synagogue, remember, and he reasoned with the Jews. And we said last week that in the course of that moment, he offered them proof that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember that? That's his approach to Jews in Thessalonica. Step into the synagogue, reason with them, presenting them proof. I mean, what does it mean to show proof of Jesus being the Messiah? Well, in the Jewish context, it meant arguing from the Old Testament, demonstrating from text that preceded the event that this was the event God was always thinking about when he talked about the Messiah. And putting the two together offered proof to the mind of a Jew who was open to that truth. Now, in this scene, I want to set it up for you in a couple of ways. Notice Paul never references Scripture whatsoever. More importantly, he never mentions the name of Jesus. And yet he preaches the gospel. It challenges us, I think, as we look at what he does here, at what it really means to preach the gospel. Test in your own mind what you have come to believe constitutes the irreducible minimum for what the gospel is. If you've come to believe I have to say certain things in certain ways to get the result, test that assumption against what Paul says here, knowing not only is he truly preaching the gospel, but it results in converts. Now, the answer to why he changes his method is certainly obvious. He's not talking to Jews in a synagogue, right? He's talking to pagan Greeks who have no appreciation for the Jewish scriptures whatsoever and for whom it would offer absolutely no supporting evidence. It doesn't support their interest at all for him to quote Old Testament scripture. So Paul doesn't try. Paul doesn't even make that effort. He takes an entirely different and culturally appropriate approach. Paul opens his statement here with this wonderful comment that sets the stage for where he goes next. The comment that he opens up with here is that I have observed that you are very religious in all respects. And there's actually a double meaning in what he just said. He walks a fine line in this statement between flattery. Flattery is when you're insincerely complimenting somebody. If it's flattery, it's a lie. And criticism, neither of which, of course, is what he wants to do. He says you are very religious in all respects. The word there is diasai diamon which has two meanings in the Greek. It can mean religious in the good sense, pious, observant, or it can mean religious in a bad sense, superstitious, in other words. Not based on truth, not based on any true knowledge, but just based on superstition. By using the word that he used, which is not a common word in Greek for religious, Paul gives his audience a chance to hear it the way they prefer to hear it. From their point of view, he's complimenting their piety. What Paul's honestly saying, though, is you're superstitious. He can be truthful and at the same time not offend them. Very, very clever in the way he opens up his statement. Undoubtedly, his opening would have gained some attention from the men there because he's clearly not from these parts. He is obviously a stranger. And as a Jew, as a visiting Jew here invited into this elite group, Paul understood something that we should understand if we find ourselves in something of a similar situation. The outsider called to come and talk about our faith. We need to understand that we have to be polite and respectful of the audience. We are, we are there at their disposal and their request, so he comes at them in the right approach. And he would have also appreciated that the group valued oratorical skill, and that skill, if it's on display, will make him all the more accessible to them or make them interested in what he has to say. So he's trying to be good at what he does here. So he elevates his game, I think, to, at least to some degree, to meet their expectations. So he starts well, ingratiates himself to them, but doesn't flatter them in the in the sinful sense. Next, Paul does something that I think every good preacher, in my opinion anyway, would do when visiting a new audience. In fact, I try to do this and I'm not always successful, but I always try to do this. I look for a hook. A hook is any device 
or any prop taken from the culture, taken from the setting, something that's useful for giving the speaker an opportunity to place the message in a familiar context. So I'm looking into the context, into the life and culture of the audience, and I'm looking at my message, and I'm looking for a hook, something that lets me bring my message into their context. Sometimes it's a joke about the local culture. Sometimes it's a self-deprecating joke about how I don't fit into the culture. Or hopefully it's a little more meaningful than that. Some angle on the text that lets the text reach them in, their, in where they are. In Paul's case, the hook was what? The unnamed God. And that became his hook. Greek documents from this period refer quite frequently to altars to unknown gods. This was a common practice within the Greek society. It was uh, an altar erected to appease the God whose name was unknown to men. And rather than uh, take any risks, they played it safe by making sure that even the God who felt slighted for not being named and known was getting some measure of respect in this unnamed altar. And Paul knew as he approached these men that he would need some way to introduce them to the true God. And he knew they were a people who believed they already had all the gods enumerated. They, They had that base covered. So if you're to walk into this setting and say, I've got a God you don't know about, the Greek pantheon was somewhere near 3,000 gods. Join the club, Paul. We're almost out of room on the shelf. Put them up there somewhere. Paul has to have some way to bring his God to the foreground when if he had done it almost any other way, they would have just heard it as yet another God. So the hook here was all important. It gave him a way to differentiate his God from what else they might have already been listening to or, or familiar with. Furthermore, Paul is taking a very careful approach here for his own sake, because in Roman law, it was illegal to proselytize, to work to convince someone to leave their religion and join a new religion. Paul here is saying, I am not preaching about a God that is new, and I'm not trying to change your opinion or change your view. I'm simply filling in a gap for you. So it was a clever way for him to avoid prosecution under that charge. So Paul says, I saw your altar to an unnamed God, and I know the name Of that God. Think about how compelling that is as an opening line. What a wonderful hook. At this point, you would think they're interested instantly and they have no reason to be threatened by his message. None whatsoever. If someone walked up to you and said, you know what? I know the name of the soldier in the tomb of the unknown soldier. You'd say, you do? What is it? That is exactly what Paul just said to these guys, which is a fabulous way to get them sitting on the edge of their seats for what's going to happen next. No threat implied, no challenge to their belief structure of the day. It just fit. And yet it's not going to fit, obviously. It's going to, it's going to challenge. But he gives them the opportunity to be interested initially. Men are fickle. What they say they want to hear can change in a moment. For the one who's interested in an honest discussion around the truth, when you press a little farther than they expected, their interest dries up in a heartbeat. What they say they want isn't always what they really want in the end. He could have launched into a direct assault with the gospel front and center in what we would say is the traditional way, the way we might do it today, the way we may have heard it done today. But he would have undoubtedly been shouted down or ignored if he had tried to do that. It would not have resonated with a group of men who were looking for something more artful and more engaging. Instead, he eases the audience into a discussion of the truth hoping to hold on to as many as he can as he goes through this process. It's, it's very sophisticated. Now, I think of Paul here sort of pulling a wagon, if you've ever sat in a kid's wagon, especially if you try to do it when you're a little older than you should be, teenager or something, where the wagon's a little small. If somebody pulls on that wagon hard and fast from a dead stop, where are you going to end up? 
And I think of the gospel presentation in this setting of, of something like that, where instead of just jerking the thing forward quickly, saying, let's just get into this discussion and leaving everyone behind, he pulls it out slowly and easily. And hopefully, as I said, holds on to as many as he can in the process. Now, at about this point, someone's going to ask about God's sovereignty and salvation. In the course of something like this, you're starting to wonder, but can't Paul just preach this any way he wants without concern since God brings faith to the heart anyway and it's in his disposal to do so? Well, the answer is actually no. And, and here's why. Yes, God brings faith. Scripture is clear on that. But in his wisdom, he works through our efforts. That's self-evident. The whole reason you have Paul and Paul's ministry is because God has chosen to work through a man. And think about the effort he went through to get Paul ready for that. Well, you could argue, was it easier for God to just save everyone on his own or go through the trouble of getting Paul ready for that? Never mind the rest of the apostles. It's self-evident that he works through men. When our efforts then lack care or precision or effort, they will go unrewarded. No fewer people will be saved on the day of judgment. We're not changing that outcome in the end. But our own efforts will go unrewarded. He will commonly, in my experience, withhold his grace in that moment so that poor quality work is not rewarded. Now, I'm not making that a rule, and I'm certainly not telling you what God will do in every case. I'm telling you, though, from common experience, we know that's true. We know in our own experience when our work and our effort is poor, when we are less than fully engaged in what God's called us to do, we have low expectations for fruit in that work. And I believe that's a part of the discipling process he is engaged in with us, that he rewards the strength of effort. That's why Scripture says, do all things in excellence as unto the Lord. The, the thought that our best efforts are what he deserves. Now, Paul worked hard here to preach the gospel, and he worked hard throughout his ministry to preach the gospel. But at everywhere he went, his methods were carefully tailored to that audience. Paul famously said he became all things to all men so that he might win a few. And that's what he meant. He might win a few didn't imply he was the one creating the faith, but he might win a few implied he would be the one who saw the fruit of that labor. I mean, he also said that he planted while others watered, but it was God who caused the growth. He understood that balance. But I guarantee he planted the best way he knew how everywhere he went. And he understood both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to give God our best efforts. How hard are you willing to work to win a soul? What's it worth in the end? If the soul is worth the work, then see it as an opportunity. Don't see it as something that you have no control over. Somebody was asking Spurgeon, how is it that you're able to always get such a response to the gospel when you preach? And Spurgeon said, well, do you expect every time you get up in the pulpit that men are going to be saved? And the guy said, well, no, of course not. And Spurgeon said, well, that's your problem. That expectation doesn't change God, but it changes our approach to the moment. That, I think, was implicit in the way you see Paul working so hard to bring a message in a new way to this audience. From that point, let's move forward and see what he says. And as I said, notice the lack of traditional gospel presentation. Verse 24, Paul says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of the heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, 
And as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Paul doesn't use any of the classic Christianese, right? No one's inviting Jesus into their heart. No one is, is praying that special prayer. I don't want to trivialize those things. I just want to point out that they're not the magic bullet. They do not have the force of salvation. They are merely a means to an end and not always the right one. Can someone be saved with the words Paul is using here? And if you think not, then you're placing too much emphasis on the words. And if someone assumes that God's sovereignty doesn't require that we make any effort at all, that person is placing too little emphasis on the words, right? There's a balance between the two. So let's look at what he says. Paul begins by describing one true God whom will be known by his work in the creation. There's one God, God of all, overall, responsible for all, and his creation speaks to him. God made all things. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, Paul says. Now, in the language he's choosing, he's directly contradicting certain Greek concepts unique to the Epicureans and to the Stoics. It's interesting how he's going after them without having to say it so much. For example, verse 24, Paul is addressing the Stoics here. Remember, the Stoics believed that all matter was eternal. There was no beginning. There was no God. Paul's directly contradicting that point of view. There is a source. God made everything. And Greeks as well believe that different gods ruled over different aspects of the creation, sky, earth, water. Paul wraps all that up and says, no, it's all belonging to the one God, the one God you don't know. Then he adds, this God continues to rule over all that he has created. Remember, the Stoics also believe that God, the gods lived in this faraway place that were all to themselves and paid no attention to the affairs of everyday men and got, didn't get involved in everyday life. And then finally, he says, they don't dwell in, he doesn't dwell in temples built by human hands. He's not one of the 3,000 you've already got inside your temples. So he's directly contradicted their view. Now, in verse 25, he moves to the Epicureans. He says, God is self-supplying. There's nothing men can offer God to impress him or please him. Remember what the Epicureans sought after? They were all about pleasure. They were all about the here and now. They would have assumed that God viewed pleasure the same way they did. God wanted them to please themselves and they wanted this. God would have also wanted them to please him through their offerings, through their sacrifice or in some other ritualistic way. Paul says, no, God's the source of all this stuff. He doesn't need what you have. He had it before you did. Everything depends on him. These are both direct contradictions to, to the camp of the Epicureans. So in verse 26, now he moves to God's role in making humanity. All of what he's doing here is designed to Right there thinking about what God is. Okay? So he says, all men came from one man. We know that's Adam. We have a common ancestor, he says. Remember, the Greeks had their own fanciful ideas for the origins of men. Today we have evolution. Now he begins to hit at something very important. You know, one of the things that's an impediment to new faith, in my experience, is pride, if not always. But pride will come in different ways. As a man who grew up as a Catholic, an unbelieving Catholic... The way you would have brought my defenses up the fastest was to imply that Catholicism was the problem. Well, my defensiveness, my pride in Catholicism would have been my barrier. In Greek culture, their national pride was their barrier. Greeks were the ascent of human thinking in the world. They were the chief nation in their mind. They were the best of the world and the smartest. Paul says to that issue, he says, this God that he's preaching, is the one who set the boundaries for every nation and appointed men to their respective nations. In other words, it wasn't 
your own ability that brought you to the pinnacle of human achievement and civilization. You were assigned to where you are by this God, as was everyone else in their respective regions, and you're no more worthy of where you are than they are where they are. You are all by God's decree where you're at. It completely is an affront to, to Greek pride, nationalistic pride, in thinking they had, through toil and effort and, and achievement, risen above all other nations. Paul says, no. Sorry to break it to you. Greek wasn't by virtue better. It was just determined by God to be what it is. And the boundaries for the nations were created. Here's a little an aside, something you may not have noticed, especially if you haven't connected this back to uh, the book of Genesis. But when he says that the boundaries of the nations were established, we know that literal political borders move around all the time. So what is it that he established that created these boundaries specifically? Well, when God scattered people at the Tower of Babel, he scrambled the language. And the language differences became that barrier. People of a common language congregated together and created tribes, created nations eventually from that common language. And likewise, the difference in language became a border, a barrier they couldn't cross, at least not initially, and it ensured the separation. In verse 27, Paul says, God set men in nations, and I would argue with the language barrier, so that they would seek him. What an incredibly insightful statement if you understand the story of the Tower of Babel. At the time before the scattering, when they were trying to build this tower, the stated purpose of the tower building exercise under Nimrod's authority was that they could reach God, which is a euphemistic way of saying so that they could themselves establish who God was for themselves. It was the beginning of idol worship. It was the establishment of a God in their own image. And the impressiveness of that effort was a consequence of their unanimity in language. The fact that so many, all the human race, could work together toward a common goal in idol worship was a threat to the race and it necessitated splitting them up into smaller groups so that their collective efforts were minimized, that they now had to work harder as a smaller group separate from the rest. It was a form of grace, a barrier to sin, a governor. Now Paul clarifies that that scattering was to create a need that couldn't be fulfilled in human power. A need to know the Creator and to seek Him. Now, of course, the depraved heart will never find a holy God in its own power. Paul actually acknowledges this when he says, if perhaps they might grope for Him. Groping in the Greek implies looking in the dark for something. That's its literal translation. Like a blind person reaching out in the dark to try to feel for God and look for God. But no matter how much someone who's in the dark gropes, they will not find what they're looking for until the thing that they're looking for reveals itself to them. Imagine yourself standing in this room, but it's totally pitch black dark, and on top of that, you're blindfolded. Somewhere in this room is someone you're trying to find. They're not blindfolded. They can see you. Now, the lights go off, and you're told, find this person. You're going to do what? You're going to grope in the dark. In your mind, you're seeking this person. But you have no idea who he is or where he is or how to find him. So you'll latch on to things. As you look now, the one who is being sought can see you and can stay well outside your reach until the moment they're ready to reveal themselves to you. And then they only have to stand in your path so that you run into them. That's exactly the biblical model of how faith is arrived in the heart. God is around us. Paul says he is near to all of us, just like the person in the room can stand right next to you, but you'll never find him unless they let themselves be found. And the men of the world do seek God, but not in a true sense, not in the sense of someone who has their eye on the target, knows what they're looking, after, looking for, and goes straight to it. Men seek only in this sense, the groping in the dark sense of what the unbelieving 
heart does before the Spirit begins to open the heart. And that's what Paul says God created by the separation. He created the groping. He created that seeking process, which in the case of the Athenians has led to 3,000 gods in their pantheon. They've touched, if you will, 3,000 things in the dark room, but they've never yet found God. That's the way Paul is describing it here. In Ezekiel 38, verse 23, Ezekiel 38, 23, God says, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. The, the fundamental truth of the Scripture is God will never be found until He makes Himself known. Then finally, in the section I read, Paul says, in God, in this God He's described, we live, we move, and have our very existence, just as your own poet said. Here's another remarkable, insightful method on Paul's part to touch, to hook into the culture. He cleverly uses Greek literature to his own advantage. Now, this shows you how studied Paul had to be. The Greek poet, Pleiades, wrote a poem to Zeus, who was the, the chief god in their pantheon. And in that poem, he says at one point, we are your offspring, Zeus. And Epimenides wrote concerning Zeus, same god, he says, you live and abide forever. We in you, we for in you we live and move and have our being. Word for word what Paul just said. So Paul is literally lifting out of Greek poetry the same phrases. We are, we are your offspring. We li in you we live and we move and we have our very existence. Words that would have been well known to this crowd who would have been just as studied about Greek literature. But he uses the quotes to support his own argument and he keeps his audience engaged in this discussion and in some sense agreeing with his comments by pulling these quotes out. So far, no mention of Jesus or the cross or belief, believing, no words like gospel or salvation or saving, nothing like that. None of the words I guarantee you we would have run to probably, at least in this early stage. He is simply arguing for God's existence, supremacy, and exclusivity as the one and only true God. But through this argument, he has laid in their laps an obligation. Whether they realize it or not, there's an obligation appearing in their laps. If there is one God, and that one God is responsible for everything, and to whom we are obliged for life and our very existence, then we are ultimately going to answer to that God. It's implied inevitably you come to that agreement. If you say to me, there's only one God. Yes, there's only one God. And he made everything. Yes, he made everything. He made you. Yes, he did. He is responsible for why you're still alive. At some point you won't be. And you'll answer to him, won't you? It's inevitable. And in the way Paul has approached the conversation, he's got them nodding through each of these earlier points, leading them somewhere that they don't even realize they're going to yet. What he's trying to do here is create the awareness of need. Remember, the preaching of the gospel actually is two parts. And in my experience, we fail to do our best when we only give one of the parts. The first part of preaching the gospel is what? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. A presentation of a solution before there is a recognition of a need is an incomplete gospel presentation. And I go back to the sales analogy again. A good salesperson, a good marketing person, this is more marketing than sales, marketing is about developing a need that people never realized they had before. And then, as soon as the need takes hold, I've got your solution. People who adhere to those doctrines believe that's a sufficient method to come to heaven, and so when you present another way to get to heaven, they've already got one. The need has to be there before the solution will make anything 
will make any sense to them. So Paul here is, run, is bringing him through a process of considering that what they believe needs to change in light of a vulnerability they have before one true God. Now, again, we could continue studying Paul's technique here all night, and I've slowed down a little in the process because I found some of this I thought to be worth the time. But we need to move on to the conclusion. So let's look at verse 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So now Paul moves from dilemma to solution. If we are calling ourselves children of God, then what does it say about us when we call our gods a hunk of wood or stone? Like he says, Zeus, we are your offspring, but here's Zeus, a hunk of stone. We're an offspring of a hunk of stone? It's an obvious contradiction. We are products of the divine nature. And so we can't live in ignorance. Paul says God has overlooked this time of ignorance. There is now this opportunity in which he is overlooking ignorance and giving them an opportunity to know the truth. This time gives way to judgment, does it not? So what time gives way to judgment? Well, literally every day since the fall of Adam, God has been delaying the moment of judgment that sin requires. And it's a time of ignorance in the fact that the world at large is ignorant of what's coming upon them in the form of this judgment. Now, the world's sin is overlooked, Paul says, during this time, in the sense that the world is permitted to continue on in its sin. Obviously, an individual, when they die, faces their judgment. But he's talking here about the age as it applies to the earth as a whole. He's not promising some infinitely long period for each individual. But for the course of human history, he's saying, for the time being, he is overlooking the ignorance of men on earth and allowing the earth to continue to spin, and day and night come, and life go on, and sin reign, at least from the point of view of, of creation. But during this time, he says, God is giving opportunity for men to leave their godless ways. More specifically, he has brought promise of the Messiah to the Jewish people and through the nation of Israel, some message to the world. They were supposed to be the light on the hill for the world. They, may, they didn't do that job very well. And now, particularly, of course, in the time when Jesus is being preached to Gentiles, that opportunity is being extended. On a future day, Paul concludes, God has appointed a man to conduct the judgment. And God offered proof of the truth of Paul's message by raising this man from the dead. Now, why would he not want to name the man? What reason might Paul want to avoid giving name to this man? In much the same way that in Genesis chapter 1, God goes out of his way not to name the sun and the moon, but that the names for those objects that come later in human history, not by God's decree, is that he understands the possibility of those things becoming idols because of a misunderstanding of their significance. That if it were named, if Jesus were named, the name that he has was given to these men, it might easily lead them to simply lower him into a conversation of the pantheon. Remember, how did Paul start? What was the hook? Unknown, leaving it in this mysterious place without, in a sense, making it commonplace by naming him in a way that would make it feel to the Greek like you've just presented yet another God in the pantheon. 
Now, how many people would tell you you have to believe in the name of Jesus? Ironically, Jesus isn't his name to Russians. Jesus is not the name of Jesus in Russian. It's not even the name of Jesus in Greek. So what is his name? God assigned him his name, but then language did its part and took his name a million different directions. What name am I supposed to believe in? It's not the human specific vocabulary. There is a holy and true name of God, that, of Christ, that will be assigned and known in the day of his return, in the glory of his return. For now, we work with the names we have, and we're happy with that. I have a good friend who's a full-time missionary, and his specialty is preaching the gospel to Islam using the Koran. He doesn't have a Bible on him at all. His preaching is to go into the Koran and preach Jesus. And yes, there are verses within the Koran that specifically testify to the deity and the sacrificial atonement of Christ on the cross. My assumption is that God made sure those were in the book despite Satan's best efforts to teach a false gospel. But you have to know where they are and you have to put them together in the right way. And he is trained to know that. And he brings that message to them out of the Koran. What name does my friend preach when he preaches Christ out of the Koran? Isa. That's the Arabic version of Jesus. So my friend preaches Isa everywhere he goes. And he struggles at times with churches locally because they don't think that's a legitimate method on the basis that it's not preaching out of the word of God. The point is, this is a great place to go to challenge a lot of the assumptions we have about what it means to truly bring the gospel to somebody. Now, I'm not saying we're supposed to be ambiguous about it if we don't need to be, but notice how he adjusts to be culturally relevant without changing the core message. Though you may not have realized it, Paul has just preached all that's required to present the gospel. Everything needed for God to bring saving faith was delivered to this audience in the words he just used. And I can show you that by reminding you of something Paul wrote in the book of Romans. Romans 10.9, he said, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The essence, the elemental, the essential elements of the gospel are a belief and confession that Jesus is the Lord, the only true God, and a belief that he was raised or resurrected from the dead. And I know the name Jesus doesn't appear in the text, but essentially the same message is presented with respect to what it means to believe Jesus is Lord. When Paul says we must believe Jesus is Lord, the emphasis is not on the name The emphasis is on the title. We must accept that the God of the Bible, as revealed in the Son of God, is the God we must believe in. Not him plus anyone. Not some diminished perspective on who he is. Not somebody who says he's only a prophet like the Muslims do. But to know him as who he said he was, Lord, the one true only God. Whether you know him as Isa, Jesus, or some Russian name, doesn't matter Knowing him as Lord is the point. So you have to know the Lord, the one and only true God, and then you have to know that that God was at one time man, died, and raised again from the dead. That's the belief. Paul has, through his testimony, asked them to accept those two truths. Now, when he says this man was resurrected, that becomes the sticking point. From that moment, the audience changes. Look, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. At the moment Paul mentions the defining proof of the gospel, the resurrection of the Lord, 
some begin to sneer at the idea of resurrection. There you have it. All the wisdom in the world couldn't come to grips with the prospect of a man returning from the dead. Truly, this is the one demonstration of God's power that men stumble over. This is the defining difference. Remember the story Jesus taught of the rich man who dies along with Lazarus? He goes into Hades, goes into the place that the Old Testament saints were held along with the unbelieving. They're separated, but they can see each other. You know the story, right? And when the rich man says, I've got to show my brothers that they're wrong and so that they don't come down here with me, and he asks for Lazarus to be sent back, what he's asking for is Lazarus to be resurrected on the premise that because those brothers, like the rich man, knew Lazarus, because Lazarus always sat at the door at the gate of their home, this man knows you can't just send anyone back. This place is filled with people, but I want you to send Lazarus because he's the one they know. If they know him, when they see him again, they'll recognize instantly, you just came back from the dead. See, Lazarus was the key for this guy because in his mind, an appearance of a dead man to his brothers would have been convincing proof. And Abraham says in Luke 16, 31, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. The same problem, the same hardened heart, the same unbelief that rejects the word of God will also reject resurrection. If you're prepared to accept what the word of God says, then resurrection will come easily as well. They're both coming out of the same God-created faith. And so, resurrection is God's intended stumbling block. Resurrection is the way God has chosen to provide proof to those who have faith and a stumbling block to the unbeliever. It is the essential defining characteristic of the gospel. That's why Romans 10.9 says it so clearly. Consider how often we may have presented the gospel with best of intentions, but have failed to, to make a point of the resurrection of Christ. What a new believer must realize and trust is that there was such a thing as a resurrection of the dead and God orchestrated it to prove the truth of the message. That alone saves all the doctrines can catch up because it's the test God has made to show whether he is in the heart at work or not. When they reject that proof, they're rejecting him because they don't have him. When they accept that proof, they're simply giving evidence that God's already at work showing faith in the heart. I have run into people who will acknowledge, sure, God could bring someone back from the dead. Yeah, maybe he did that to Jesus. But they're not believing in it in the way we have come to trust in it. There's a kind of an acceptance that's deeper than the mental assent. One person would say, well, sure, anything's possible. It might have happened. We don't look at it that way at all, right? We look at it as proof we will experience the very same thing. And our, our reason for not fearing death, our reason for suffering persecution in the name of Christ, our reason for a lot of the things that Christians are called to experience is because we know at the end of the day we come back from the dead into an existence that doesn't suffer those things any longer. That is the fundamental difference. And however we choose to bring it to someone, in whatever culturally appropriate way we find, we've got to get there based on the testimony of Scripture. Consider nothing that Paul said was particularly forceful. Nothing he said was argued from the point of insistence. It was a simple, matter-of-fact, though carefully worded, presentation. And some believed. On the few words that he offered, and in the face of sneering, a few people believed. That's the true miracle here. A few actually accepted the gospel because of the work of the Spirit to change a heart. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The ones who sneered at Paul say, 
You know what? We'll hear more of this. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. You can sit down now. Thank you. We'll hear more of this later. When they say here, we will hear more of this later, that means go away, don't come back. And as you'll see here in a minute, Paul does exactly that thing. Here's this intriguing topic of life after death. We, we seem, our culture, frankly, seems fascinated with that concept for all the, the different movies that are being made of ghosts and, and paranormal and so on. You would think this group would have shared in some of that same intrigue, right? This man just mentioned death and dying and coming back to life. Ooh, this is going about to be good. No, shut it down. That's just what Paul said would happen in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The word of the cross is instinctively, naturally offensive to the depraved man. 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 1 Peter says, quoting out of the Old Testament, 1 Peter 2.7, he says, This precious value then, speaking of the truth of the gospel, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, it is the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. It's the proof of God's sovereignty and the fact that their rejection illustrates the heart that is set against the truth. So Paul knows what's happening. When he leaves at this point, he's content, I would argue, with what God gave him in that moment. Remember, this was all to fill time while he's waiting for Timothy and Silas anyway. He says, I got some time. Let's preach. See what God brings me. I got a few souls out of this. Fair enough. I move on. It came in a moment. He worked in that moment. He left. He wasn't in Athens primarily for ministry. And so he leaves satisfied. In the end, he never founds a church in Athens, the only major city he spends any time in in which he does not found a church. He never returns to the city again. This was the hardened Greek bastion of pagan belief. And they worship wisdom even more than the gods they pretended to follow. And they weren't interested in the truth. This entire experience brings together several elements. First, we are workers in God's field and we owe our master the best work we can give him. Paul was waiting in Athens, as we've already said, and yet he still thought he could make an impact here. And his technique for delivering the message showed great depth and appreciation for the culture. He made his best effort. We owe God nothing less. Secondly, no matter how much Paul played with the presentation or with his approach, using hooks, using Greek poetry, no matter what he did, he didn't change the essential heart of the gospel message. You don't play around with what it means to believe. I was reading an interesting article on the web today about some of the controversy surrounding the pastor of, ironically, the Mars Hill Church in Michigan. And his book, arguably, it departs from Scripture in its description of what it means to go to heaven and how you get there. And what he claims in his defense is that the terminology and the words he's using are what's necessary to reach a different culture. Paul would be an ally to that thinking, Only as far as it does not change what the gospel is about. And this man has chosen to go further, I believe, than what the gospel permits. But there is nothing wrong with a culturally appropriate message. The call to repent, the call to accept one true God who raised his son from the dead. That is the universal call of the gospel. We don't change that. And men must understand that our message demands that they walk away from a current belief system, whatever that is, and in its place believe in this one true God who raised his son. Because that's what God gave us. And then finally... Paul never forgot that it required the Spirit to make the message effective. When his speech produced only a handful of believers, he was satisfied. Or, if not satisfied, he was accepting. 
of what God was at work doing. And he accepted that God never intended to establish a church in that city, at least not by his hand. So he never visited again. He never even wrote to the city. There's no evidence that he ever saw it as a place in which ministry would, would happen under his watch. In fact, according to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, the remaining time he spends in Athens waiting for Timothy and Silas, he spends that time writing letters to the church in Thessalonica. You all know Henry Blackaby? I'm ashamed to admit I once shared a seat on a plane next to Henry Blackaby for two hours, never said a word to the man because I was too busy and didn't want to bother the guy. I had done experiencing God. I had seen him on the videotapes and I just didn't notice him. Fortunately, I had been reading my Bible and not something else. And while we're on final approach, he looks at me and says, uh, what you reading? Have you ever heard Henry Blackaby? He's got a voice you cannot forget. And as soon as he spoke, I went, you're Henry Blackaby. And he says, yeah, I get that a lot. And uh, my point is, not that I would have evangelized that man, of course, but you got a seat next to somebody in the plane. There's a good opportunity to use it. And I'm ashamed to say I don't always do that. So we need to be ready to witness to Christ even when we're waiting. We give our best effort. We try to find the most effective way to deliver the message. We don't change the heart of it. We accept the fruit we receive. We don't get good at this unless you try it, unless you practice it, unless you work at it. Father, thank you, Lord, for the message of working hard, of doing what we can and the strength you give us, in giving excellence, Father, to the important work of bringing men the gospel. Father, we don't rely on our own efforts. You tell us that in your word. And we don't, we don't see ourselves as having the power to save anyone. But don't let that, Father, make us lazy either. Help us, Father, not only in the presentation of the gospel, but in any other way in which we serve you in the body of Christ. Let us to see, let's see those opportunities as an opportunity to be excellent and to glorify your name before men. And thank you, Father, that we can be reminded by Paul's excellent example. Let us come back next week and as we continue to watch him at work, Father, learn more. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.